Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Stephen Garf, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm, I'm great, Bill. Thanks for having me on. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that and glad you're listening. Uh, glad to have you on today. This will be a lot of fun. Uh, for the listeners, Stephen sent me an article uh, a few months back, and uh, the article posed a different way in which to understand uh, why members uh, stay in the church or leave the church when they encounter uh, hi- issues within history or, or other things that perhaps could easily bog some down, but for whatever reason, others do not. Uh, Stephen, I wonder if just maybe uh, to get us started, if you wouldn't mind sharing kind of a brief bio about yourself, and uh, and then we'll jump into uh, some of the ideas that you've come up with. Okay, thanks, Bill. I, I'm an attorney in, in Salt Lake City and uh, grew up in the church, um, served a mission, have the, the normal uh, Mormon cred bio, and uh, but have been involved in in studying history of the church. It's something I'm just very interested in. I spend uh, probably the majority of my time reading reading books about uh, church history, academic books, books about theology, doctrine. Uh, I've also spent some time online in various forums, um, having dialogue with believers, non-believers, Mormons, ex-Mormons, and so I for probably 10 years or more now, I've just kind of been thinking about um, understanding different perspectives on this and trying to understand why people leave, why people stay, why people become disaffected, why people are able to make it work. And um, and it wasn't too long ago that I basically kind of threw up my hands and came to the conclusion that there is no overarching explanation. Everyone is so different that there's really nothing you can say intelligently about that question. Um, but not too long ago, I had a had a thought that sort of changed my mind on that, um, where I was looking at things and thought, um, had, had an insight that we'll, we'll get into of why I think that some people stay, some people leave, and at least it explains a large percentage of people. Awesome, awesome. Uh, and so... What I want to do at this point is, uh, and obviously that's the question you're tackling, right? Why some people stay and are able to make Mormonism work while other people can't and abandon their faith. And you talk about how this has is, is puzzled you for a long time, and, and then you have this kind of light bulb moment, uh, which I want to begin to kind of kind of get into and tackle. Let's start off with this. Uh, so you're trying to come up with an explanation and what you call an explanatory hypothesis. Uh, what would an explanatory hypothesis look like? Uh, as we try to tackle this question of why some stay and some leave. Okay, thanks. So, explanatory hypothesis is not, we're not talking about some ironclad law of physics. I, I really do not believe that there's kind of one thing you can say. This is why, this is the reason why such and such person stayed. This is the reason why such and such person left. But what I'm looking for is, is there a way that we can understand broad trends, that we can look at people as groups and see 
trends that we can understand, that we can dissect, that we can predict, that we can see something. So it's kind of along the lines of a social science theory. Right? No social science theory says this applies to every single person and everyone. But they do say that we can look at people, we can look at things going on, and we can, we can see trends, we can see broad events and, and, uh, and people, uh, we can make predictions based on what people are experiencing and what things are happening, and we can make educated guesses. So I'm looking for something that, um, that will explain what we're seeing out there will explain a lot of reasons why people are leaving the church, will help us understand that, help us empathize with people who are leaving the church, and help people who have left the church empathize with those who stay. Let's follow that up then. The the thing you first jump into, which I think is beautifully done, is you jump into some failed explanations, and, and you list 10 of them, and, and I think I've seen each of these 10 out there in the internet or out in uh, in my ward when people try to discuss why some people struggle and some some tend to have an easy time with some of this material you give these 10 reasons why members leave or why members stay that you don't feel really holds up to uh, to the facts and and I totally agree with you let's jump into those 10 let's share uh, why don't you share some of these and and maybe we'll stop and talk about some of these along the way okay before we before we do that I just want to make the point that for many individuals, these might apply, right? Any individual tend to, to have them. These are the most common things, at least that I've seen online, that people say. Uh, but I'm suspicious of them generally for, for two reasons. One, I'm suspicious of narrative in the first place because we always are going to tend to craft narratives in ways that make us look good. Even unconsciously, we do this. So if you are, you know, these are some of the bad examples we'll talk about. If you are someone who uh, left the church, let's just say, because you were offended, it's quite probable that maybe you're going to say, well, I left the church because I studied the facts. And if you're someone who's staying in the church because you really aren't aware of the facts and haven't done any research, you might craft a narrative that says, well, I'm because I choose to believe or something. So I'm suspicious of that. It becomes doubly suspicious when you take these narratives that you used to explain your situation and then use them to apply to other people, to impose your story that you've created and use it to explain why someone else has chosen differently than you. At that point, it becomes very suspicious and, and, and can be quite damaging, and I think that should be avoided. So, um, yeah, let's launch into these. These are the... the uh, probably the 10 most common reasons, at least, that I've seen. So the first one is ex-Mormons became ex-Mormons because they learned the facts about Mormonism. Believers stay believers because they have not learned the facts. The problem with this explanation is that while it could be true of some individuals, there are just way too many counterexamples to to account for any broad trend. You have... um, apologists who understand facts, you have uh, New Order Mormons, you have uh, ordinary members, you have scholars, people like uh, Claudia and Richard Bushman, Terrell and Fiona Givens, Armand Moss, Phil Barlow, very intelligent people that are aware of the troubling issues and yet find a way to make faith in Mormonism work. You also have a lot of ordinary members you can have conversations with that aren't aren't scholars, that aren't New Order Mormons, that aren't apologists, but but are interested in this stuff and and understand the facts, and yet decide to stay. So, so to dismiss uh, everyone or or most people saying, oh well, they just don't know the facts, I think is extremely unfair. I, and I agree with that. And even on the other side of that coin is the fact that there are lots of people who leave the church who don't 
who don't know this deeper history anyway. And so to try and say some people stay, some people leave, uh, it works both ways. There are plenty of people who are staying and leaving who understand the information. There's also plenty of people who stay and leave who, who don't have a clue of the deeper history. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. In fact, that leads well into the next point, which is sort of the corollary of this, this explanation that goes the other way. This is ex-Mormons study church history a little, believers study it a lot. And I've heard, uh, I think, Elder Snow, several general authorities say essentially, don't study church history a little, study it a lot. And I think that's good advice. I think the problem that you have is when you take that and apply it to ex-Mormons and say, oh, well, they just haven't done their homework. And it's very simple to become, very easy to become disabused of this false notion if you start talking with ex-Mormons. There are a lot of disaffected, Morm- disaffected Mormons that understand history very well, that have looked into the details and have studied it very effectively and very deeply. And so you just can't say with either of these two explanations that the reason someone has stayed or the reason someone's left is because they know more about Mormonism than the other side. I, I don't think the difference between Richard Bushman and Richard Pakman or between Dan Vogel and Dan Peterson is how many facts they know about Mormonism. All four of those individuals know a ton about Mormonism. Yeah, I totally agree. And I was thinking of uh, Dan Vogel as the example as you were as you were going through that point. Um, I've used this. I've used this myself. I've I've often told members that uh, you know if you're just reading a little bit of church history, you're going to find some problems. Uh, you're going to have to read a lot deeper if you're going to want to find solutions, which I think is true. But I think that there's a big leap there to saying that those who leave the church. Uh, simply haven't read enough, and I and I think that leap is one that many make. Yeah, it's unfair. It, it's it's unfair. It's dismissive. Um, and, and yeah, though I think in some cases the solution may be to read more to say, oh, well, other people they just don't know what they're talking about. They haven't read enough. Is is unfair uh, on both sides. Yep, totally agree. Number three, um, ex Mormons think critically about their faith. Believers have not. They may know the facts, but they lack capacity to assess what they mean. This is the explanation that you often encounter when you have a discussion with someone, you realize that, oh, well, they understand the facts, but they have a different conclusion than me. Why do they have a different conclusion than me? Oh, well, they must not be thinking clearly like I am. Right? So you impose that on other people. And the, the real problem with this explanation is that, again, there are too many counterexamples. There are a lot of people who are believers who are in Mormon studies. And what this means, if you're a professor of Mormon studies, say you're Patrick Mason down at Claremont or you're Phil Barlow, your job is to think critically about Mormonism. It's not just to know the facts. It's actually to think critically, to write articles that are peer-reviewed, and you're critically evaluating the facts relating to Mormonism. So to say that these people somehow can't think critically uh, is is overly dismissive and and, and I think offensive to, to, to dismiss people that way. The other side of that one is, is, is number four, is to say, well, ex-Mormons see things in black and white, and believers see the nuance. I, I see this a lot, and I'll admit that years ago, this was the explanation I favored personally, because you can encounter so many discussions with, with, with disaffected members where they talk in such black and white ways, where they see things in black and white, and it's so tempting to want to dismiss that. Um, it's also, I think, fair to point out, though, that many of the people who see things black and white in Mormonism can actually give really good reasons for why Mormonism should be evaluated that way. So that's one, one point to get out there. But 
more than that, there's, there's two real fundamental problems. One is that seeing things in black and white probably describes most believers. Uh, most believers, at least I've met, have, tend to have a fairly black and white world. So to say, well, it's the believers that see the nuance, it's just not correct. But the, the real death knell for this explanation is that there are, and in my experience, so many ex-Mormons out there that once I began talking to them and realizing these people see the nuance, they understand the complexity, and they're not see, taking this black and white approach, but they're very intelligent, informed, and they're willing to see the nuance and to see the shades of gray, yet, yet they're still disaffected. So, so that just, for me, utterly fails as an explanation. Yeah, as I think about number three and four, uh, I've often, and in fact, I wrote, I did a, a podcast episode and I wrote an article uh, where I tried to take Fowler's stages of faith and make it kind of into a Mormon a, a Mormon vocabulary, and I kind of divided stage three, four, and five into these three colors of uh, of green, you know, red and blue. And in doing so, one of the things I tried to tackle was this idea, especially in number four, which is, you know, most of the church is in that black and white thinking. When they encounter problems, and in that black and white thinking, they cannot make it work, they'll simply, you know, toss out their testimony, leave the church. But they haven't left the black and white thinking. So there's both Mormons and ex-Mormons who still see the world that way. And you also pointed to the other side of the coin, which is that there are certainly Latter-day Saints who have gravitated towards a Fowler stage four, stage five, who fully believe in the truth claims of the church, have found ways to make it work, and they lead with faith. Meanwhile, there's also members of the church or um, ex-members of the church who have left, who have done the same thing. And so, again, I think you've made a good point. While we use number three and four as explanations, uh, they don't tend to hold up as a as a overall explanation for the entire group of why those who stay, stay, and why those who leave, leave. And I think you made a good point of that. Uh, number five. Yeah, and, and one, one other thing to add there, that what we're looking at, right, is, is, well, why are some people, why do some people go through the trouble of, discarding black and white thinking because because anyone who's been through that experience knows it's very difficult and painful well that flat out sucks that transition yeah and so so what why are some people willing to to go through that and come out with a uh, you know a very kind of maybe different but still a believing position on the church and and some don't and and i think that just just saying oh well they see things in black and white or they see things nuanced is not helping explaining why people are, are making that shift. Do you have any thoughts on why that is? Do you have, because that would be an intriguing insight. Do you have any thoughts on why people leave black and white thinking? Uh, what is it that causes some of us to kind of stay there and some of us to kind of move on? Well, I, you know, I, I'm definitely speculating here, but, but I want to start by saying I don't want to be too black or white thinking because there are a lot of people who I respect on both sides of the disaffected and, and believing perspective who, who see things that way. And, and that doesn't mean that they're not smart. It doesn't mean that they haven't. For me, I've had to discard black and white. It's something that, that I've done. But, but people that see things that way, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say that they're wrong or they're misguided. It, it's just not something that works for me. And, and, and why you do that, I don't know. I think what I can say something to, and we'll get to more later, is, is why uh, some people are able to discard black and white thinking uh, in such a way where they can still reconcile uh, belief in church, and, uh, and others don't. The thought that just occurred to me is that people that that, that 
that do keep black and white thinking in the church, maybe that's the only thing that's going to work for them. That they, 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 the, the, the non-black and white thinking is not going to work. If they go that way, they can't see keeping faith in the church. And because they want to maintain faith in the church, it's sort of a defense mechanism. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about number five. Okay, number five. Mormons are brainwashed. Ex-Mormons have overcome this brainwashing. This is problematic for several reasons. One, I think it's it's overstating uh, what brainwashing is. Brainwashing is that scene in The Clockwork Orange where they hold your eyes open and break you down completely psychologically. Teaching children to sing hymns like Follow the Prophet, teaching missionary discussions. I, I don't think that's fairly considered brainwashing. That's propagandizing. Right? It's, it's propagandizing. It's, it's putting a single thought, a single view into people's heads and, and excluding all others. And it may be problematic, but I don't think this explanation explains why people stay and why people leave. Even if you assume that the church is brainwashing people, why are some people able to overcome that brainwashing and why are some people not? And if the church is, is propagandizing people, which I think is a more accurate view, why do some people reject that propaganda and some people accept what the church is saying and are able to continue to to follow that and make that work in spite of perhaps conflicting information. Yeah, I like this one as well. Uh, and I think this also works both ways, right? Because there are Mormons out there who will have a friend who comes in contact with the really simple, what I would call, see, I always split anti-Mormonism into two categories. There's the evangelical kind of critical comments where, you know, they'll pick on the idea that in the Book of Mormon, you know, it says that, uh, Jesus is born in Jerusalem and we know he's born in Bethlehem. And, and yet there's also this kind of, uh, ex-Mormon critical argument, which I would kind of point to as the things you find like in the CES letter. And it's easy for us as members of the church to see somebody we know as a member of the church who comes into contact with, with some of these simplified arguments and we say, oh, and they fell away and oh, they must have been brainwashed by these, by these silly arguments that have easy answers. And, and so I see that coin also working both ways. Um, and this idea too of brainwashing, it's easy for the critics to put, to pick on the fact that the primary kids are singing Fall the Prophet every three weeks. And, and, and like you're right, on some level that is propaganda, but everybody does that, right? I go into, the school system and I say the Pledge of Allegiance and so right away I grow up with an attitude that, that my country is by far superior, more heroic and more morally correct than any other country around. Uh, and that goes for every country, every school system, every religious faith, uh, even atheism has some level of propaganda that it, that it shares. And so to say that Mormonism is, is using this this cheating tactic uh, I think avoids the human nature of what we all do every day. Yeah, yeah, propaganda isn't necessarily a bad thing. Right? If you if you legitimately sincerely believe that you have the correct answer to something, right? That's what you're going to say. That's what you're going to tell people. You're going to So it's not I think it's it's better to get everything out there. But but especially with children, I have children of my own. I don't, you know, we don't sit down and have really complex discussions. When I say, you need to listen to your mother and do what she says, I don't say, okay, well, let's talk about, you know, well, when obedience is a good thing and when you need to think for yourself, right? We're not ready for that yet. So to to say that this is, you know, propagandizing, I don't want to come off as being completely dismissive of what the church is doing or and what anyone is doing, right? We all engage in propagandizing. We're all espousing one certain view at a time. And there, I think there's no doubt that that goes on very frequently in the church. Well, you brought up you brought up anti-Mormonism, and I think this is 
a good point to discuss something that's important to understand about anti-Mormonism, and that is when we when we use the word anti-Mormonism, especially when it's thrown around in church or among believers, you're conflating several things. Because there's anti-Mormonism like anti-Semitism, which is a sort of bigoted, hateful um, view. But then there's anti-Mormonism in the sense of anti-position, like, like anti-vaccine, right? This isn't coming from hate. This is coming from arguing against a position. So you do have these sort of more uh, hate-motivated anti-Mormonism that, that we've seen, um, you know, famous uh, in, throughout history of the church and the 19th century, even, even more modernly, we've seen some things like the God-makers. But there's also anti-Mormonism like things like Mormon Think or the CES letter, which you can say are anti-Mormon, but they're not this hateful anti-Mormon. They're anti-Mormon, and they are arguing against the Mormon position. Beautiful point. Beautiful point. I appreciate that, and I think we often conflate the two, uh, one which tends to, again, like you say, almost be kind of on the attack of Mormons as a people, and the other one tends to just simply address the issues, uh, and I appreciate that. Um, Number six. Ex-Mormons just want to sin. Mormons stay true to righteousness. But this one, I mean, in some ways, I almost don't want to address it. It's so offensive. It's so um, preposterous on its face, but it's so common that the people say, oh, he wanted to sin. Ex-Mormons want to sin. There's, there's, there's several problems with this. One is that there are so many good, upright people who are disaffected, who are trying to do it, you know, as they go through the disaffection process, are trying to do everything they can to live the gospel as they understand it. And even after they become disaffected, they're trying to do everything they can to be moral, good people. And so to dismiss these people as wanting to sin is is, is offensive and, and wrong. Um, on the other hand, do you know who wants to sin? I do. I, I assume, I don't want to speak for you, Bill, but probably you do. We all do. We all have weaknesses. We all have temptations. We all have uh, our, our own unique challenges. And, and, and so to to say that oh they wanted a sin you know is, is not looking at the at the at the beam in your own eye that we all want to sin and we all have this and it's such an I think one of the reasons this explanation is popular is because you can universally apply it you can always find some sin in someone you can always find something they've done wrong and so you can write them off see see aha see that's why now he's drinking beer so so he's a bad person that's why he left he wanted to drink beer and and not look at the things you're doing in your life that are, are, are sins, that are wrong, and yet you're staying in the church. Um, so, so I just don't think this works as an explanation, and it needs to stop. Yeah, but didn't you see the light go out of his eyes, right? I mean, he, he <laughs> yeah. no longer has the Holy Spirit, and so it's obvious. I can see that in him. Um, you're right. We often want to say that while we're in the church, there's all these positive things that happen to our human nature and that anyone and everyone who leaves uh, is is entering a slippery slope uh, on a on a path to destruction and as you point out that just doesn't hold up um, number seven Mormons just stay because their family is being held hostage uh, this is problematic even for two reasons it fails to account for the many ex-mormons who leave the church at great personal cost to their family, who, who lose their families as a result, and yet leave the church. So you're not explaining why these people leave and at this great personal cost and other people stay. But the problem, I think, that is even deeper is that it's really offensive to believers because it assumes deep down that they don't genuinely, they're not sincere in their position, but they are only acting out of self-interest, which is, again, wrong and offensive and I think needs to stop. 
I see this a lot. So I go into a lot of discussion boards because I try to participate in a lot of places just so that I'm offering a different voice, whether it be in a conservative uh, discussion board so that people see that, that I'm validating those who are having a hard time, but as well as some of the, the, maybe the members who stay but no longer believe and are staying for some of these reasons that they feel like too much would be at, at stake if they walked away from the church. I stay there as well and participate so that they can see that there's another person who knows the issues just like they do and finds a way to make it work. In the midst of that, um, I see a lot of people who use this reason that they are, in a sense, being held hostage by the church, that if they leave, they won't be able to go see their daughter get married in the temple. If they leave, uh, they won't be able to... Uh, keep the relationship they have with their spouse or with their parents. And I think there's some truth to it. But as you're pointing out, there may be truth to each of these. And we'll kind of talk about that at the end of these 10. But there may be truth to each of these. But none of these 10 works as a very good sole explanation for the issue. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. It is true, definitely true for some individuals. And I, I think we should make a distinction now between, between you know, I've been using the word ex-Mormon a lot. But probably a better word is disaffected, right? Because there are a lot of very unfortunate people in the church who are disaffected but but feel like they cannot leave for one reason or another and feel like they have to pretend or be fixed. And I don't want to I, – I would say I would put these people in the, in the disaffected camp on this, right? They, they are in the church, but that's not really out of their own desire, right? They're in a very unfortunate, difficult situation. I've heard the word uh, disaffected Mormon underground to, to refer to these people. I, you see quite a few of them online. And – and, and they're often the, the angriest, most bitter people online. And I don't think – I think that's very understandable. I think that, that, that you can sympathize with that because they're in a very difficult situation. Great. I appreciate that. And I, and I too would validate them. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's easy to just say, look how angry they are and to blow it off. But that anger comes from – from some real bitter experiences and some things that have really kind of turned their world upside down. So I appreciate that point. They come by it honestly. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Uh, number eight. Believers are engaged in mental gymnastics. This is one I've, I've seen quite a bit of and, and I've heard. Um, it's actually very similar to a theory that I'm oversimplifying. It was proposed by Michael Shermer in his really good book, Why People Believe Weird Things. And uh, he makes the argument that the smarter you become, the, the better you are at um, defending what you believe, right? The more skills you have. So you don't necessarily get closer to the truth by becoming better trained in logic or better uh, having better grasp of the facts. The philosopher David Hume said reason is not to be the slave of the passions. A lot of people debate what he meant by that. But one way to see that is we kind of use our minds uh, as a tool sometimes to justify things. There are there are some problems though with applying this as an explanation for why people stay and why people leave. One is that it, it's overly dismissive to say that oh well someone has done some sort of complicated thinking in order to stay in the church ignores the fact that we all have to do that. We all have to have if we're going to have a comprehensive or sophisticated worldview, we got to deal with some nuance. We got to think deeply about things. We got to reframe things. We got to reject assumptions and find new assumptions. We got to engage in these types of, you know, mental gymnastics, which is a disparaging term, but I think thinking deeply and thinking um, in subtle ways is not something to be disparaged. It's not something to be wrong and it's something that we all do. So just to dismiss one side and say, well, they're 
engaged in mental gymnastics, I'm thinking clearly is, is unfair. The other problem with this is it doesn't explain anything. It doesn't explain why some believers, why some people go through the trouble to have these mental gymnastics, to try and stay in faith, and others don't. Good point, good point. And, uh, and I do think maybe it's worth saying that I think all of us on both sides, whether you've left the church, whether you're disaffected and still in, whether you're uh, full feet in and, and moving forward uh, within a, a faith paradigm within the LDS church, I think it can be said that we all do some mental gymnastics at times. I think, you know, for the critic who no longer believes, I think there's pieces of the LDS story that they go, you know, I can't find, I can't find a good criticism for this experience within LDS history. There's, there's no way for me to, to easily explain how this worked out the way it did. Um, and I think members do the same thing. And, and so as you're pointing out to say, oh, it's, you know, it's biased and this is why one side does this, uh, I think is totally unfair. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so number nine. Number nine. Very common one. Ex-Mormons were offended. Believers were not. And I think this is, I think this one's offensive, frankly. And it's, it's problem. There's too many counterexamples. Many of the greatest injustices, um, committed to people, uh, who are in the church have been committed against those who remained the church's most ardent supporters. You can find this throughout history. You can find this in modern time. You can find a lot of people who have, uh, had great injustice happened to him, yet remain committed to the church, remain committed to belief and faith. And there are a lot of people who leave, and uh, for very complex reasons, it's not fair to say, oh, well, they were just offended. Um, right? I, I've seen actually people make the point, uh, ex-Mormons, like, yeah, that's right, I was offended. Here's all the problems with the church, right? And And, and I think that's actually a fair point, because to say, you're offended. In some ways, maybe it's accurate. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're upset at the church. You don't like the church. But, but, that, that, but to just say you're offended delegitimizes that, right? When you have legitimate reasons for your positions and you're not uh, examining that and looking at it and just saying, oh, they were offended, I think it's very unfair. And this reminds me of the, the statement that I hear some members make, you know, the Lord is sifting out the wheat and the tares. And this idea that all of us who stay, we're the wheat, and those who leave, they're the tares, and this just has to happen. And I think that paints the problem way too simply, and it tends to say anybody who leaves is the bad guy, and since I'm still in, I'm one of the good guys, and, and hence I can just dismiss anybody who has a counter-argument to my, to my belief or my paradigm. You know, Bill, that's a really good point, and, and it's actually caused me to think of another one on our list that kind of goes both ways, and that is common. I, I just realized this when you said that, 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 that people will say, you know, basically the good guys are staying or the good guys are leaving, right? So, so you'll have people say, oh, all the best and brightest people leave Mormonism. Kate Kelly uh, drew some fire recently for saying something essentially that, that was kind of like that. All the people who, you know, are going to stand up for truth and be honest are, are leaving and, and are not going to be Mormons. And the people who, who stay are, are the opposite of that. And then the believers do the same thing. They say, oh, you know, these people that left, good riddance, we didn't want them anyway. And that's tragic. It's just a tragic view to write off other human beings as not important. It reminds me of, of the great passage in the New Testament, you know, where you can't say to one part of your body, I have no need of thee. You can't say that to the eye. You can't say that to the foot. Whether you're, whether you're an ex-Mormon, whether you're a Mormon, you can't say to other people, I have no need of you. I can write you off as less than me or as not as good, not as righteous, not as smart, whatever it is, that we, we should all... Uh, respect each other, love each other, and accept each other. Amen. Amen. Beautiful. Uh, take us to the last one, number 10. 
Last one, very common. It's a choice I choose to believe. I choose to leave. Um, I actually believe this is ultimately true. I'm a believer in free will. I think people have choices, at least in some circumstances. I'm, I'm persuaded by the argument that I've, I've heard Carol and Fiona Givens both advocate that that belief in the church is is such that that you can choose to accept the truth claims or you can choose not to, that there's not real ironclad evidence one way or the other. I think that's true. At least it is for me. There, there may be people who don't see it that way. For them, the evidence comes down so strongly on one side that they don't feel they can choose. But for me, I think it is true. The problem with this explanation is that it's not an explanation. It explains nothing. Saying people choose to stay doesn't tell you anything. Unless you just want to throw up your arms and say it's random, we can never know why someone's left. We can never predict if someone's going to leave. We can never know why someone stayed. Um, it, it means nothing. And I don't think I don't think the fact that there is free will or free agency rules out the uh, possibility of crafting explanations that explain trends and explain people. An example that I think of a coin toss. If I toss a penny up in the air, it's uh, you know neither of us can predict how it's going to turn out, right? It's just going to be a guess. It's random. But if I take a box of ten thousand pennies and flip them, we can conclude, I think, with you know reasonable confidence that around half the pennies are going to be heads and around half the pennies are going to be tails. So perhaps in any individual case, you can explain it in free will. But when you're looking at people generally, you can make predictions, you can make guesses based on the external circumstances, why people are going to choose things and why they're not. Excellent. Excellent. And I, I really like these 10 reasons. And I think we, we talked about this a little bit earlier. I want to just point out again, because you say this um, in your article, one of the quotes you say is in most cases, one or more of these numbered explanations probably apply. And I think it's important to say, hey, we're not dismissing these 10 reasons as as not uh, applicable, but rather that these in the end don't truly explain why some stay and why some leave. Rather, they're just part of the formula. We're looking for kind of an overarching reason uh, for why these things happen. Yeah, that it kind of explains their existence in the first place. Again, why a believer is willing to engage in mental gymnastics, and and, and why a uh, you know why a, a, someone whose family is being held hostage is 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 willing to take a stand um, and, and, and sacrifice that even. So. We're looking at something a little deeper, and and people will, I think, naturally want to counter that. Well, this explains me. This explains me. And I don't, I don't want to say it doesn't. It, it it probably does in your case. I do think people should critically evaluate the narratives they craft because uh, we have a tendency in our in our uh, psychology to create narratives that are favorable to us, and so those should be treated skeptically. But I don't want to sound dismissive of of what people are saying are the reasons they leave. I I can never know that. For any individual, right? I can I can talk about something I think is a better explanation in general, but I can't really criticize any individual. Right, and I think it hits the nail on the head with each of these ten bad explanations. It's not that it isn't true for any one person. The trouble comes in when each of these ten reasons are used to explain everybody. So when somebody leaves 
because they discovered the facts. And they say, well, that's the reason everybody leaves is because they've discovered the facts. And the reason everybody who has stayed stays is because they're, they're simply not aware of the facts. I think the issue comes in when you, we acknowledge that these 10 reasons may all have a part in any one person's journey, but they do not explain uh, the general populace within Mormonism of those who have left and those who have not. And we're looking for something that kind of connects the dots of everyone. Exactly, Bill. Perfect. Um, you begin now. So you've, you've labeled uh, these 10 ideas of what does not explain why all of those who stay, stay, and all of those who leave, leave. But now you try to get into kind of what does answer that. And, and you give some background on something called the Grotman ratio. And it, and it kind of goes into this positive, negative override sentiments. Maybe give us uh, some of that background so we can kind of understand what this is. Mm-hmm. So, so John Gottman is a professor of psychology at the University of Washington. And, uh, his, his work really focuses on marital stability and relationship analysis through scientific and direct observations and mathematical models. Beginning in the, the 1980s, he and his team of researchers began interviewing married couples in a laboratory where they had this kind of complex system where they would look for micro expressions and they would code them. And what they found um, is that they can predict with about 95% accuracy whether a couple will still be married 15 years later after just a short interview, which is quite remarkable. So some other scientists have kind of argued that this number is maybe a, a little um, inaccurate, but still I think most people recognize that that what he's done is found a very good way to predict and characterize marital, marital stability. Um, and so what he would do is he would take all the interactions a couple has during the interview, and he would code it, negative or positive. And then, you know, while we're simplifying some, some interesting, interesting uh, statistical analysis he used, but essentially what he found was that in cases where the positive interactions outweigh the negative interactions by a ratio of five to one or more, the marriages are extremely stable. It's extremely unlikely that these couples are going to uh, voluntarily dissolve their relationship. But as you start to get less than that, especially as you start to get to where the negative interactions override the positive interactions, that changes. That These relationships become very unstable and are very likely to end in divorce. Um, he explained, I want to read a quote. This is actually from an interview he had with uh, Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Blink. Um, and this is, this is reading this passage was what gave me the insight. I was using it for a Sunday school lesson on, on marriage, actually. And I was reading this passage, and I'd been thinking about this problem for years. And um, it kind of dawned on me that this, this might be what's going on in, in regards to our question. He says, people are in one of two states in a relationship. The first is what I call positive sentiment override where positive emotion overrides irritability. It's like a buffer. Their spouse will do something bad, and they'll say, oh, he's just in a crummy mood. Or they can be in a negative sentiment override, so that even a relatively neutral thing that a partner says gets perceived as negative. In negative sentiment override, people draw lasting conclusions about the other. If their spouse does something positive, it's a selfish person doing a positive thing. It's really hard to change those states, and those states determine whether one party tries to repair things. The other party sees that, or whether when one party tries to repair things, the other party sees that repair as hostile manipulation. For example, I'm talking with my wife, and she says, will you shut up and let me finish? In a positive sentiment override, I say, 
Sorry, go ahead. I'm not very happy with a recognized repair. In negative sentiment override, I say, to hell with you. I'm not giving a chance to finish either. You're such a bitch. You remind me of your mother. <laughs> um, when I no, pro- yeah, sorry, sorry about the no, 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 there, that's but. okay. I've uh, I've seen both of those types of interactions between couples, uh, and and I'm a, I'm a convert to the church. I'm the only member in my family, and I will say that I see a little bit more of the second uh, outside the church, but I, but I've certainly seen both within and without, and. And this answers a lot of things. I mean, you're, you're really hitting on something that I think explains a lot of human nature. When, when I look at my own relationship with my wife, there are times in our relationship where she will say something and I automatically assume that what she's saying is negative. And there's times where she'll do the same with me. And it's neat to kind of read this, this thing from Gottman that, that kind of explains why we're doing that, that there's this positive or negative, uh, override, this negative sentiment override that, that puts us in a position to kind of doubt people, doubt their motives, doubt what's behind their words. And we almost kind of go beyond the words themselves and kind of create what we think is behind them. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, it kind of reminds me of a, I can't remember if it's Mormon or Moroni. I believe it's in the book of Moroni where he says a bitter fountain can't give good water, a good tree can't bear bad fruit, right? You, you, you kind of will make these judgments that, uh, that everything is bad or everything is good coming from your spouse. And we all have these situations where we judge our spouses poorly or we, we judge them, you know, in a, in a more charitable way. But what Gottman is getting at here, is this idea that we can get into these states, that these patterns are trackable and develop over time where we're in one or two, where we are going to generally see things positive, that we are going to be able to dismiss the negative as an exception, an aberration, and focus on the positive. Or on the other hand, we're going to be in the negative sentiment override where we will explain away positive as manipulation or as an exception or as, well, okay, my spouse uh, did this. That was nice. But what about last week when this happened, right? Um, so, so that's the states that people get in. And I'm not a. I have no real expertise in uh, psychology or marriage and family therapy, but uh, it, it does make a lot of sense to me on an intuitive level. And this may also explain why, when you know, I served as a bishop. And uh, certainly, you know, some couples came and, and spoke to me and, and needed help and were having a hard time. It, it kind of explains why some who come and seek out help and feel like they're kind of on their last little, you know, last little possible edge before they call it quits on their relationship, why some couples seem able to kind of start over and repair some of that and others seem to just leave no room to try and fix things because maybe some behaviors have gone on for so long that they just, it's almost impossible or they feel it's impossible anyway to kind of let these, you know, subliminal internal override sentiments uh, to change. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's right. Um, so you come across this, you have this light bulb moment. Now share with us the application this has as we begin to kind of figure out how this weaves into what we're talking about. Yeah, so it's, it's actually very simple. The, what, what the explanation is, is that those who stay in the church, make it work, are, are people who are in a state of positive sentiment override. And those that, that leave the church or become disaffected are those in a state of negative sentiment override. And the reason that they're in one or one of these states and not the other is, is because of the difference between the positive and negative interactions this individual is having with the church. 
So people who have a lot of positive interactions with the church, it's really helping them out. They, they love going to church. They're enjoying it. They're uplifted. They're having great interactions with the members, having great interactions with their priesthood leaders. They're enjoying the scriptures. They're liking the principles. Those people are in a state of positive sentiment override. And it's going to be very unlikely that if you're in that state that you're ever going to want to leave because you like the church, you love the church. On the other hand, if you're in a situation where you've had negative experience after negative experience, you've had uh, priesthood leaders who are not sympathetic and have not treated you well, you have uh, been reading material that's, that's brought you down, right, that, it's, that's, um, that you've been reading things that really bother you from church history um, consistently, you have been um, just having bad interactions, your politics are clashing with the church over and over and over again, you're going to be having a lot of negative interactions, and it's going to be very hard to see the church in a positive light when you're having so many negative interactions with the church and so few positive ones. Uh, In your article, you talk a little bit about kind of browsing the Internet and kind of finding places that, uh, that are neutral, places that seem to be more faith positive and places that seem to be more critical of the church. Uh, and what you found there, maybe talk for a moment about uh, your experience kind of delving into these various uh, arenas within Mormonism online and, and how that perhaps uh, has shown some evidence of what uh, we're kind of delving into here. Yeah, so you'll see this, whether online or even in person, as you start to uh, have these discussions with people. So, you know... Um, you see, for example, let's take an example. You see online a church, an article gets posted about the church donating land for some cancer hospital. Um, to believers, they'll, they'll just kind of say, oh, this is great. This confirms what we thought. To disaffected, the church is, in Gottman's words, just a selfish person doing a positive thing. So you'll see comments like, well, this isn't really the best use of tithing money. They're only doing this to boost the value of their nearby real estate developments. They're doing this to be seen by men. The church is a selfish person. So everything it does, even if it appears to be positive, is selfish. Uh, you'll, you'll notice this, too, with, uh, with comments that, you know, when the Relief Society comes by, you haven't gone to church for a while, Relief Society comes by and brings cookies. A lot of people will complain about that because they see it as manipulation. Now, now to a believer uh, in positive sentiment override, they just can't understand that. Like, well, how could you be upset that the Relief Society is knocking at your door, bringing you cookies, inviting you to come back to church? What a nice thing for them to do. But if you're in a state of negative sentiment override, you won't see it that way. You'll tend to see it as, as manipulation, as hostile. And believers, on the other hand, will do the same thing, right? You'll see uh, an article about something bad in the church or, or a fact from history that, that is negative on the church, that reflects poorly on church uh, leadership and on the institution. And you'll hear people say things like, well, that was a rogue bishop. You know, Brigham Young was just a man of his times. Right? Joseph Smith, uh, we never said he was perfect, okay? You know, that, that those kind of things where you take the bad and you dismiss it as an aberration. Just like in our example before, when the wife did something bad, you kind of just say, oh, well, she's just having a bad day. She's in a crummy mood right now. That, that explains that. And you do the same thing with the church. You're, you're not going to come to the conclusion that the church is evil or the church is wrong. You're going to come to the conclusion that this is an exception. This is not what the church is. This is just an aberration. Yeah, and and I find, too, that 
when you surround yourself with people who are in this positive sentiment override or surround yourself with people in the negative sentiment override, it doesn't take long for that to begin to kind of feed you and to feed into the way in which you approach the world. I mean, we often teach in Sunday school. I remember having a lesson with kids in a young men's class and telling them, you know, if you have, you know, 10 friends who aren't living the standards of the church, what is more likely that they're going to pull you slightly down to where they're at or that you're going to be able to lift all 10 closer to where you're at. And most of the young men agreed that that when you surround yourself with people who either are negative based on what your standards are or more positive based on what your standards are, you'll tend to get pulled those directions. And I think you hit on it. When you go into some of these uh, forums online, when you go into places, if, you know, if just take, for instance, a uh, an anti or a disaffected member website, let's say um, exmormon.org. And you go on there and you look at the different discussion posts that they're having. I mean, you'll have posts where one person says, hey, my home teacher visited to me, visited me today. I know that the bishop and the ward council sent him. I know that they're, they're trying to manipulate me into going back to church. When in reality, they don't have enough facts to go anywhere further than that home teacher simply was tried to stop by and, and do his home teaching visit. And, and right after his comment, you'll have 10 or 15 other disaffected Mormons post right after that and, and second his notion and, and kind of bolster up his, his feelings and reasons and motives for why that was what he saw in it. Uh, I just think it sometimes can be scary when as a member who's struggling, you find comfort in a forum or in a discussion board, or in a group of people who feed the negative, or even to the other end, overly feed the positive, rather than having kind of neutral discussions about what some of these things actually mean. Yeah, I think that's correct. And um, maybe I can give a couple examples. I've, I've just kind of looked for some, um, just you know, over the past couple of days. I can read from online. Here's one. Um, this, this was in a, shared in a, a Facebook group that's primarily disaffected members. And, and, and so this was a, a like a, a meme, like a, a photo, and it was actually done by, it sounds like it was done by some Christian believers that they were sharing. And the person that posted this said, oh, my, my TBM relative or whatever posted this on Facebook. Can you believe it? This is, this is what it says. It's got two columns. Um, the first column says God, and it describes these attributes of God, steals you, reassures you, leads you, enlightens you, forgives you, calms you, encourages you, comforts you. The next column is Satan. Satan rushes you, frightens you, pushes you, confuses you, condemns you, stresses you, discourages you, worries you. And the comments in this thread were, were generally, well, I, I didn't know that Satan was the church. The church is Satan. The church is Satan. Right? What you're seeing is people see these things and they associate it with the church. Worry, discourage, stress, condemn, confuse, pushes. And, and believers can share this same quote on their Facebook wall. And they see the church as stills you, reassures you, leads you, enlightens you, forgives you. I saw an, another one recently um, about this. You know, just yesterday, the church announced this new adoption uh, policy. They're partnering with this uh, private adoption company. And they'll, I, I haven't read a ton about it. My understanding is the church will essentially pay for people's adoption fees. And they can use this organization and adopt through, through this organization. The church will pay for it. Um, and this is a comment I saw on a post um, you know, by 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 a non-believer disaffected member. This is what they say: the morgue is doing this good thing for the wrong reason. By partnering with the secular adoption business, they will have a new supply of children who will be indoctrinated, resulting in future tithe payers. Their own birth numbers are down, 
um, over what they once were. This is a very savvy move. It also protects them from liability. Yes, adoption is a good thing, but we have to separate the concept from the motive here. Everything the morgue does is to get more money. So I think this is a very good example of, of negative sentiment over, right? Everything the church does is for a bad reason. Even when they're doing something that's good, this looks good. Remember, it's bad. We know they're selfish. We know the church is evil. They're doing it for something wrong. And, and believers, I can't believe, in fact, in the same form, there's some believer came in and said, I think rather dismissively, I'm just waiting for all the exmos where you say, to have ad hoc explanations of this policy to fit some sinister narrative, right? I think this person recognizes that idea, but you can say the same thing of a believer, right? You can go in a believing form, and, and there'll be a negative article. There'll be something bad. You'll be talking about Joseph Smith's uh, polyandry, for example, and people will be, you know, explaining it away or dismissing it. I see this with, you know, I've noticed this with my friends, and I've kind of, and I think this is part of why I, I came to this conclusion even before it dawned on me, I would watch a friend and I'd see on Facebook their post and they start complaining about the mall or something and I start to see, oh, here it comes, right? Like they're going to be disaffected pretty soon because what I think I was seeing is this transition from positive sentiment over right to negative sentiment over right. All of a sudden, the church's motives are suspect and a problem. And so if you look at forums, you look at these discussions people are having, they generally agree on the facts. Right? The facts are the facts. You can't really dispute that. This is what Joseph Smith did. This is what the church did. What their argument almost always comes down to is the motivation. What was the motivation? Why did the church do this? What is the character, right? The reason facts are relevant about Joseph Smith are because his character in these discussions, right? That's what everyone's getting at. Well, what does it say about his character? What does it say about the church's character? And, and, and that is something we don't have access to. We have to guess from the facts. But if we are in positive sentiment override, we're going to naturally gravitate towards a positive conclusion about the character. And if we're in negative sentiment override, we're going to take the same facts and gravitate towards a negative assessment of the character. Awesome. And I, and I think that you've, again, you've hit on something that I think that as people listen to this episode, they're going to begin to see kind of the reality of this within their own lives and, and kind of at this point be able to kind of take apart those first 10 reasons that we shared and say, yeah, this may be true to some extent in my life, but, but this is a, a more overarching explanation of why that has been true in my life, why some of these reasons apply, why other ones don't. And, and I think that you've, uh, you've really kind of hit on this golden, uh, golden nugget of truth here. And I appreciate that. I, uh, I wonder if you might now take us into, as we begin to kind of go over the hill and head on our way back down towards a conclusion, uh, the idea of what this uh, Gottman's ratio, we've, we've talked about how it impacts kind of overarching a way that the members leave or members stay and why. Give us the advantages of this as an expl uh, explanatory hypothesis. Okay, thanks. Um, so one of the main advantages I see first is that it's faith, truth claim, and morality neutral. Almost all the other explanations in that list and the other ones I've seen, they have built into them an assumption that either the church is true or even the church is false, that it's right or it's wrong. And I think that doing that is not helpful. Whether the church is true, whether the church is not true, in some sense doesn't matter because if you have that assumption built in, 
people aren't going to listen to you on the other side. They're not going to be able to see things. They automatically have to dismiss your theory because it, it destroys their narrative. It, it conflicts with their narrative. So I think and most of the best scholarship, you see the uh, academic scholarship of Mormonism or religion in general, it kind of brackets the truthfulness of the church, right? So we're going to get at what are the facts, and we're going to... Um, not, you know, come down and say, oh, well, the church is true, the church is false, Joseph Smith really was a prophet, or he wasn't. The, the best scholarship, I think, ignores that. So, so this hypothesis doesn't assume or require the truth of the church or the falsity of the church. Um, it, ex- it holds as an explanation regardless of whether the church is true, regardless of whether it's false, whether it's good, whether it's evil, doesn't matter. Great point. Take us to the second one. Um, it incorporates the significance of all the other explanations in part one. And we talked about this a little bit, but essentially I think this is the why behind those other ten reasons. Um, and, and it explains why people choose that one narrative over another, why people uh, will, will gravitate towards one side over another, why people will engage in mental gymnastics, why people will uh, leave the church after something bad has happened to them, or, you know, as a believer might dismiss it, as why they might be offended, right? It explains what's going on. And I, I think that's true in that, you, as you point out, you take those other 10 reasons that really don't explain uh, explain the large majority of members and why they stay and why they go. And, and this Gottman's ratio can really be used kind of over top of each of those, kind of as a heading to each of those, why, why some of these things happen. Uh, take us into the third one. So it's objectively measurable, and I recognize this is probably something that's very hard to do to measure this, but this is based on external stuff, empirical stuff. We're not talking about what's the internal mental state, right? What we're really getting at is how many positive interactions do people have with the church and how many negative ones. And and you could potentially get this through interviews or other things, but I think for our purposes, it's something you can at least get a sense of. It's something I've noticed. I can get a sense of whether people are experiencing mostly positive interactions with the church or mostly negative. And so it's useful. Excellent. I think this is why I bewilder people, uh, and because the critics, the critics of the church can't understand why I stay in, uh, and why I post faith positive things. The, the apologist or the, uh, person who's ultra conservative and orthodox can't figure out why in the world I would ever raise any kind of criticism of the church. I don't know how I've done it, but somehow I've kind of been able to kind of maintain a a neutral ground to some extent. I mean, obviously I admit I'm at the end of the day, I'm faith positive. I'm leading with faith and I'm aware of the issues, but it's weird having people on both sides kind of see you as, is not really um, being honest to yourself or really not, um, accounting for the information in a valid way, it, it seems like that's kind of the, the, I guess the, how can I phrase this? I think that sometimes can be the result of kind of hanging out in this middle ground because it's so easy to paint these broad reasons of why someone stays or why someone goes. Um, but I think Gottman's ratio kind of maybe hits at that in a more fair way. I look at my life and I see my own experiences and I would say s- many of them have been positive. But at the same time, too, I could certainly list a large number of them that are negative. And I kind of find that as I read your article and thought about how my own life has been impacted by this, I would put two buckets, right, one on each side of me, and and they would be maybe close to equal as far as positive experiences and negative ones. Hmm. You know, and I think my experience is very similar to yours, Bill, that, that I, I've experienced that as I'm sort of more of a middle grounder like you, that, that, that I will get criticism from people on both sides. I just can't 
they just can't empathize or sympathize with me. And I think it's because if you're so strongly in one of those states, you just it's just going to color your worldview. It's going to be very hard to see things from any other side. And that's, that's understandable. It's human nature. And um, But I've got to admit to myself and recognize I'm in a state of positive sentiment override with the church. I, lo- I love the church. It's been great for my family. It's been great for me. It's in a lot of the things in my life. It's been very positive. I generally enjoy church. I certainly have my complaints. I have my complaints about the way church has handled its history. I have my complaints about church being boring. I have my complaints about political issues. I have, I have all sorts of complaints. But for me, in my case, they don't outweigh the positive. The positive for me is, is, is greater, and so I don't have a lot of interest in, in, in uh, leaving the church or being disaffected. It's something that I enjoy. Beautiful, beautiful. So we've, uh, we've tackled the, uh, the first three. Let's go to number four. So the uh, hypothesis is applicable to the vast majority of people who leave, but we're not vocal about that. I, I, this is something I think it's fairly well known, but that most people who leave the church don't go on the internet and 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 start uh, communities and, and and start you know posts about the church. Right, most people that leave are youth who, as they become teenagers, they just kind of fall away. New converts who fall away, they go off to college, they get married, and the church just isn't very meaningful in their lives. They just kind of drift away. And and I think this kind of explains that. It's just that this is a less acute thing. They're also in states of negative sentiment override, but it's not as acute, right? The church isn't as big of an issue, and it's just kind of not relevant in their lives. They have to do. Excellent. Uh, the fifth one. Um, so this one... Um, for me, uh, personally, I think it's maybe the most important point about this. And if I could get anything across in this this interview, it, it'd be this. It does not blame those who decide to leave or those who decide to stay. Th- those people who are in situations where the bulk of their interaction with the church is negative, it is totally understandable. And I think anyone can sympathize, whether you're a believer, even in positive center, or you can sympathize with someone who is in this situation where interaction after interaction after interaction is negative, is a bad experience that you can sympathize that they are going to be in a state of negative sentiment over it, that they are not going to like the church. They are not going to respect the church. They are not going to appreciate the church because they are in a bad situation, right? They they are not being treated well. They're not being treated fairly. And I think we can sympathize that and recognize if you're a believer, if you're someone in a positive sentiment override, that you're in a position of privilege, that you've been blessed to have positive interactions with the church, to have the church do good things in your life, and that other people have not had that experience. And on the other side, if you're a disaffected member, to recognize that people who are not, are, are coming from a situation where they are having great experiences in the church. They love the church. It's doing great things in their lives. So why would they want to leave it? Why would they want to disparage it? And when you're having discussions with people about the church, uh, whether it be you know in person with family, friends, or online, or in the, heaven forbid, the comment section of the Salt Lake Tribune, that that the people that are supporting the church and arguing the church, right, they're, when they're in a state of positive sentiment override, it's a lot like me and my spouse. If someone starts trash-talking my spouse, or at least what I see is trash-talking my spouse, I'm going to get defensive. I'm going to maybe get angry. I'm going to put the barriers up. Maybe I'm going to uh, put my head in the sand. Maybe I'm going to block because I love my wife. I don't want 
to hear bad things about her. And are there bad things about her? Well, well, no, there aren't. But, but assuming there were, I don't want to hear about that because I, I want my relationship to be strong. And I don't. And if people start attacking my wife, I'm going to get defensive. And, and believers are going to be that way with the church. And I think it's totally understandable. It's something you can understand and sympathize with and shouldn't be too harsh to condemn when people rush in to save the day as the apologist or when people shut down and don't want to discuss things because they are in a situation where they love the church and they don't want to hear bad things. And so my plea here is to recognize that our positions that we come to on this question aren't necessarily a result of the capital T truth that out, that's out there. It's not necessarily because we know the truth and the other side doesn't. And that's so hard to hear because we always like to think we're right. But the problem with just assuming we're right is you assume that the other side is wrong. And why is it that they're wrong? Well, they're wrong because they don't know the facts. Oh, okay, they know the facts. Okay, well, then they must be wrong because they have poor logic. They're not able to reason facts. Oh, okay, they're able to do that. Well, then they must be evil. They must know the facts. They must know the truth. And you'll see this conclusion. I've seen it with people who say, oh, well, the general authorities, they all know the church is a fraud. Or people who say ex-Mormons, they know the truth. They just, they, deep down, they know it. They just want to sin, right? This is very unhelpful. What I think we need to do is recognize that our conclusions are coming and informed by our experience. The, uh, the continental philosopher Gautamer talks about what he calls positive prejudice, this idea that any conclusion we form is based on the prejudgment that we have and is going to be informed by that. And I think we need to recognize that where we are coming from, it's our experience. It's informing it. And that's not to say we're right and they're wrong, but but recognize that our conclusions are based on our own unique experience. Everyone's experience is different. So it's not fair to just invalidate someone or dismiss someone who comes at something different because if we were in their shoes, we would likely be like them. Yeah, and this blaming and dismissing of of others because they take a different position than us, on the surface, it seems like these folks are trying to explain why somebody else is different but I think the reality is they're simply trying to validate their own position. In other words, if if I've chosen to stay in the church, I have to find a way to validate that. And so the, the way I would do that as I look at some of these 10 explanations and you talk about this idea of blaming others is this whole thing of saying, okay, those are the folks who have left the church. What makes me different than them? Obviously, whatever it is, because I have to make this positive reinforcement of myself and my choices is to then paint them as having done something negative, having a negative motive, having a negative reason for doing so. And and I think often this blame game isn't really about making someone else look bad. It's more about trying to validate ourselves. And it it seems to be a real self-centered kind of thing to do, but I don't know that we're aware of it on the surface when it happens. Yeah, I I think that's dead on. So uh, give us the next one. Um, So the next one still leaves room for choice. Right. This doesn't mean that you don't have choice. And there's there there's there's maybe perhaps free will to to choose what you want ultimately. But I think the important part of this is that is this idea that you can choose which override state to be in by choosing your interactions with the church, by carefully uh, deciding to have positive interactions, negative interactions to to decide what battles you're going to fight. Right. If you, if you want to always go argue and get mad. It's like with your spouse, right? I can I can get upset about something my wife did. 
and I can choose to go have a fight with her about it, which is probably going to make things worse and probably going to maybe push the both of us closer to that ratio where it's not good anymore. We're out of the five to one and we're starting to have more negative interactions. Or I can choose to say, you know what, let's resolve this in a way that's positive. Let's make this a positive experience. And the other fact of the matter is, if you're in a relationship uh, with your wife or with the church, you're going to have negative interactions. Those always happen. Those always come. You always have disagreements, fights. So you can, with your wife, choose to say, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to increase the positive. We're going to have date nights. We're going to uh, have things. I'm going to bring her flowers. I'm going to do whatever, right? Whatever uh, that you two enjoy as a couple to do that um, and to focus consciously on doing that. And uh, same thing with the church, right? You can choose if you wish to increase the positive interactions you have with the church because maybe you can't totally avoid the negative, right? You can't change history. You can't change the church's politics. Whatever it is about the church that, that, that is a negative interaction for you, you can't necessarily avoid, but you can choose uh, to increase the positive. And I see this in examples of guys like Lowell Banyan, Eugene England, guys who uh, in some ways were very uh, outliers in the church in their positions and their viewpoints, but were able to have very positive interactions with the church. And I remember uh, it was Eugene England saying something like, yeah, the reason this works is because I go up and show up to the cannery and I help out and I stack chairs and I, I do everything that's, that I can to be connected to the church and serve the people so that when the negative happens and the criticism needs to come, it's coming from a place of love. Understanding, and this is very similar to, you know, not too long after we started talking, Bill, um, uh, Samuel Morris Brown came out with an excellent book called uh, First Principles and Ordinances, and I, I can't say enough good things about this book. I absolutely love it, and he he stole my idea before I probably before I even had it. Um, but he he talks about the Gottman ratio in his section on faith, and he talks about. Um, you know, kind of, he gets really, I think it's just, I, I recommend people read this, but he says, he says, I'm going to quote him here. He says, too often people believe that a marriage is over when romance matures, when in fact the marriage has only then begun. It's much the same with faith. There will be a time in our practice of faith when we disagree or find our fellow saints disagreeable. Those down times will come as inevitably as they do in any relationship. In faith, we can balance those negative experiences with positive experiences. Yeah, you mentioned Samuel. Uh, I just interviewed uh, Samuel Brown uh, on his book Holy Dying, I think is the name of it, and uh, this whole idea of death within Mormonism. Um, but Samuel, if you're out there, just a, a little shout out. Uh, Stephen came to me months before your book came out, so if there's any kind of lawsuit, I'm a witness for the intellectual <laughs> property. Uh, you'll you'll win, Stephen. And so that, uh, of course, of course, Gottman's got you both beat. Well, Gottman's got us both beat, and, and, you know, I really appreciate Sam's book, and I'm glad, you know, he had the same insight, because I think this is very helpful uh, to have people here and, and, and to disseminate broadly, and I, and I just hope, I just hope, you know, the most people possible can, can't, can't find it helpful for them. Awesome, awesome. Take us into, uh, we've got a few more here, so number seven. Yeah, you know, one, one that I think is useful, it, the hypothesis accounts for the fact that emotion is usually the driving force in our decisions. This is well known. We know that, that, that often, you know, whether we're buying a new car or whatever, we might have a lot of intellectual type reasons we think or fact-based reasons, but our decisions tend to be um, really emotionally driven. And this has been confirmed in multiple studies. I've heard that John Larson 
on his podcast expressed this point that you can't get people to leave the church, which is, you know, kind of in some in some ways that I wouldn't say it's necessarily fair to say it's his goal, but it's something he talks about a lot. You can't get people to leave the church by just explaining facts to them. Right? People won't leave the church unless they're in an emotional state where the church is is bad. Right? And and I think this kind of explains that, that, that no fact is going to persuade someone one way or the other. But there has to be an emotional change, an emotional impact if you're going to change your negative or positive sentiment override. And that, like you say, that explains why these these discussions, these conversations between those who are disaffected and those who are are on this conservative, faithful side of the spectrum, why the discussions are so emotional, why there's so much um, risk to offend another person or to say something hurtful or to try to drag somebody's name through the mud. Uh, these are emotionally hinged conversations and uh, maybe as we're aware of that maybe we can kind of soften things up a little bit and and bring the discussion down more to a a level where we're just discussing the information discussing the issue but not making these uh these conversations personal is there a good, that's a great point the facts are never just the facts right no man's an island it doesn't stand alone there's always some emotional motivation that that is getting people to perhaps not react as kindly or as objectively as they could. Excellent. Take us to number eight. Um, it can be used to predict those who are likely to follow. And, and, and we've talked about this, but you know, I just see this. I see this in friends. I've seen this in, in people online where you can just see this ratio change. And it, it'd be something I'd, I, don't, I don't have an empirical science background, but it'd be something that uh, it would be interesting to be studied to see if we can find ways that we can help people understand people. I, one, one I thought, thought of is if, if you've read um, John DeLynn's Why Mormons Question Survey, which is an excellent work that he's done looking at. He was interviewed um, tons and tons of disaffected Mormons. I don't have the number in front of me as, as to why. And one thing you notice, he, he rates two things, the moderate strong factor and the primary factor. And and then what percentage of people list those? And what you'll find is there's about oh a dozen moderate to strong factors that a majority of people list as a factor, right? So there are what what's going on here is that these people leave. It's many many things. There's 12 different things for the majority of the people in this survey that have caused them to lose belief or faith in the church. And so it's this aggregate. It's this. It's this, uh, it's this overall effect of many things adding up. And if you can look at those and address those, I think you have uh, an, an idea of how to predict what people are going to do. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great evidence that we're onto something here. That you've got this, uh, that you've got this idea that seems to really have some deep impact on how we decide these questions of who stays and who goes. Is is that we can sit down with somebody long before someone's made the decision to stay or go and and realize that uh, they're already leaning one direction and almost predict what's going to happen. Uh, take us to number nine. Number nine, it explains why it's so rare that people leave the church um, for these types of, you know, disaffection reasons that you see on Internet forums come back. Right? Generally, the people that leave the church are people that just kind of, and then come back are people who just kind of, you know, fell away as youth. But for people who are in very strong negative sentiment override facts, as as Gottman has pointed out and we quoted him earlier, it's very hard to change this. And it's hard to change this because even the good at this point will be seen as negative. Whenever 
there's a good interaction, a positive interaction, that if you were totally being objective, maybe you would code it as positive. You would consider it positive. But when you're in a sense of a state of negative sentiment override, you are going to code that as negative. You're going to write it off as an exception or you're going to see it as manipulation. Right? They're only doing it to manipulate me, to get more tithing dollars. They don't care about me as a person, really. And so it's very hard to change. And it's, you see, it's very rare for people to come back to church. It happens, but it's extremely rare. And I think this uh, is a way that perhaps accounts for that. And this idea, as we talked about earlier, it, it, it certainly blends over into marriages that don't last. It blends over into maybe a friendship or blends over into whatever other kinds of personal relationships we have with people uh, or with entities. And, and I think as any listeners listening to this, It'll help make us each maybe more aware of what our interactions are so that we can have, as you put it, some control over uh, what our relationship is with, with the church, with our spouse, with our, our parents, our children, our friends, uh, and any other uh, organization that we might belong to. Um, wrap us up. Take us up to, to number 10, uh, which is the last one. And I think this is an important one, that, and I, and I want to say this first. You've hit on this idea why it's so difficult to turn it around, but number 10 kind of hits at the point that there's never, it's never too late. Yeah, so, so the last one is it can be changed. We talked a little bit about this when I, when I quoted from, from Dr. Brown, but this is something that if, when you recognize this and understand this and understand the source of these things, our negative and positive interactions with the church, it's something that we can consciously choose to change. If you're a, a person that is perhaps teetering, you can make the choices to have more positive interactions with the church. And if you're someone who's, say, a priesthood leader or, or, or someone who's just concerned about people leaving the church, if it's friends, family, or you're working with the youth, I, I think the answer is that you can do whatever you can to increase the positive interactions that you have with the church and, and, and what you can to do the negative. And you can't necessarily, you know, you can't necessarily – uh, avoid the negative, right? There are negative things about the church. There are things in our history that are, are very troubling. There are things that the church has done that are that, are, that uh, can very easily cause people to question, and, and rightfully so. But what you can do is you can say, okay, we're going to have the positive. And so if you're someone who, say, works with youth and you have someone who's drifting away, um, I think it's so the reflex is to go in and try and solve the problem, right? to come in and say, okay, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to explain away your concerns. Um, and this is a real problem. And one reason it's a problem is because you're in positive sentiment override. So as soon as they start explaining negative things about the church, your defenses come up, right? And you're going to get defensive and you might uh, not think clearly and you're not going to be particularly kind. And what this does is it has the exact opposite effect because instead of helping this person resolve their concerns, what you've done is you've just gave them a negative interaction, one more tick on, on the ratio that's starting to tip the scales. So rather than, than take this sort of aggressive, apologetic, I'm going to defend the church. I'm going to explain away your concerns. Understand people. Try to understand them. Try to sympathize with them. And try to do what you can to make things positive. Do things that are fun. Do things that are enjoyable. Find out what they like about the church, what they enjoy about the church, and focus on that. And do those things and involve them in that. Because that, I think, will help people a lot better than, than trying to address their concerns head on, which you maybe can't resolve, right? Because it's an emotional thing. It's not just a fact thing. Excellent. And so as we kind of wrap up here, uh, any other thoughts on kind of the takeaway of what each of us can maybe pull from these ideas and, and do differently as we go forward? 
Well, I, I hope they'll be helpful, and and I, I want people to to I mean primarily understand and empathize with people who are on their side and see things differently than you, and recognize that your own experience is is prejudicing you. It's biasing you, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing that you're being prejudiced or biased, but it but recognize that you are, and so you have this humility that you can approach people on the other side of the aisle. And, re- and recognize that you're speaking from your own unique particular privilege, whether that privilege is an ex-Mormon disaffected privilege or whether it's that you have that experience and other people do not share your experience and do not see things the way. And then if you are someone who wants to maintain faith, you can do that. Um, and, and the way to do that is to focus on positive. You know, there's there's so much good that you can read about the church. Uh, I mentioned Samuel Morris Brown's book, another plug for that. Um, you know, I, I read through that major, major ticks for the positive sentiment as I was reading that. Um, Adam Miller has another book called Letters to a Young Mormon, which is just great for that. Uh, just um, fantastic read. So, so, so do that. Focus on the positive. Find things you like about the church and, and, and what makes you happy about the church. And you can stay in a sense where you're you're happy and you're positive and the church is, is, a, is, is good to you. Because I do think the church does a lot of good. I sympathize with those who, who conclude otherwise. But for me personally, it has. And it's something that I want to focus on and stay on. So, so it's something for me personally that I try and do. Yeah, and like you, you know, having said earlier that I've had certainly negative interactions, but that I too try to focus on the positive and, and that to me is the whole impetus behind leading with faith. And, and Stephen Garf, I, I appreciate you so much being on and sharing. This has just been one of the coolest articles that I've read probably in the last year and, and really helps me to kind of dive deeper into how maybe I can be more helpful through the podcast and, Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on and share that. I can maybe work this up and, and put it out there so people can read it um, as well. What I'd love to do, Stephen, is when this episode releases, is to have a link to that article so that when they click the episode, they can also below that episode uh, click some resources. And one of the resources would be the article that you just shared. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on today. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. And I'm not sleeping like a baby It's happened too long to say it's lately I'm too old to grow out of this It's too much that I think I'll miss It's like I've seen better days So I try to get out Walk on these sandy shores I'm too old to grow out of this It's too much that I think I'll miss It's like I've seen